Well, good morning. It is really good to be with you today to open up the Word of God. Welcome to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for that rendition of Psalm 46, our Lord of hosts. What a special day we've had. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. We're going to be continuing our study of the life of Abraham. If you're a parent in the room this morning, you have probably had the same experience that I have had. You have had a child in front of you that has rationalized their bad behavior. They have tried to justify to you what they did wrong, but actually why it was right that they did so. You see them trying to live out a technicality before you. But the truth is, that's not just for children. Adults do that too. You've done that. I've done that, not only as a child, but also as an adult. I'm reminded many years ago, I was 13 years old, it was the last time I got a spanking. Now, I didn't say it was the last time I deserved a spanking. It was, however, the last time I got a spanking. My mom and I, we lived with my grandmother till I was about five years old, and then we got a small trailer and put it on my grandmother's property right next to her house. And so we lived there a couple more years until my mom married my stepdad and we moved out. That meant that trailer was vacant. Well, my grandmother's brother had made some pretty poor decisions and needed a place to live, so the kindness of the heart of my grandmother was displayed and she said, you can live here. So he moved in there. Well, that summer, I had some cousins who had come down from St. Louis, and we were playing together, and the oldest cousin, he and I, we were best friends. For me, I was like a jug of gasoline. For him, he was like a box of matches. Separately, we were fine. But if you put us together, something was going to explode. So one night, we went out into the yard, and we had this huge light pole in my grandma's yard, and all these bugs would come to during the summer. They would get zapped, and then they would fall to the ground, and these toads would hop up there for dinner. Well, my cousin and I, we caught about six, seven, eight of these toads. We put them into a five-gallon bucket. We covered it so they couldn't get out, but left just enough opening so that they could still breathe. The next morning, my uncle left for work. We took this bucket of toads up to his house, and my cousin, being the city guy, knew some tricks of the trade that I didn't know. He went into my grandma's house, got into a grown-up's wallet, got a card, walked up to the back door, and just popped the lock to the trailer. So we went in with this bucket of toads. Now, boys and girls, if you're still listening, this is one of those times that you do as Pastor Brad tells you to do and not what Pastor Brad did. <laughs> so we go in and we take the lid off and we put these toads from the bathroom into the kitchen to the bedroom. I don't think my uncle was a believer, but if he knew anything about the Bible, surely the plagues of Exodus must have come to his mind. We thought it was mission accomplished. We left the trailer. We walked out on the deck and my cousin also saw me and her brother coming out of the trailer. So she told on us. Well, my grandmother took me aside and she said, Bradley, you all know me as Brad. I only get called Bradley when I'm getting a reward or I'm getting in trouble and I don't get awards anymore. So I knew I was in big trouble. She said, Bradley, did you go into your uncle's house? I said, no, grandma, I did not go into my uncle's house. She said, did you go into your uncle's house? She knew I went into my uncle's house. I said, no. She goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Grandma, technically, that's not his house. That's your house. <laughs> well, that logic didn't work for a 13-year-old, and it still doesn't work now, trying to live out our lives on rationalizations, justifications, and technicalities. And that's a small instance, but when we look at that as compared to our faith, we realize that too often 
We're living on technicalities, rationalizations, justifications for our sins, trying to make something wrong that we did right in our own minds, in our own conscience, in our own hearts. Think if you're driving into work one morning and you are late, 20, 30 minutes late, you walk in and the boss says, you're late again. What happened? Where were you at? Well, boss, you just don't understand. There was a traffic jam on the freeway. It was backed up. There were police and there were fire trucks and there were ambulances. There was debris everywhere. Airbags were deployed. It was a parking lot out there. It's like, well, okay, well, I understand. But what you didn't tell your boss was that was actually in the other side of the freeway, not your lane. What you said was true, but it really wasn't. A rationalization, a technicality, a justification of your own sin. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a couple of instances in Scripture where this happens. We're going to see that these passages, though, are more than just technicalities. They're more than just rationalizations. They're actually more than just ethics. These passages are about our God. The others are just the tip of the iceberg, but when we plummet down deep, we see the stories point us to the person and the work of God. He is the main character. Everyone else that we're going to see are simply the supporting cast. As we look at these truths, it is all about God's faithfulness in our failures. It is about God's sovereignty in spite of our sin. And even though people will fail, it is always God who will prevail. And so as we see this theme throughout these stories this morning, you're going to be amazed to know, particularly if you've ever heard me preach, I only have two points. That's it. Just two things. No, I'm not sick. Yes, I did prepare. No one on staff has censored me. I have chose just these two points, these two timeless truths that are going to put everything into perspective, not only in this text, but if you can take these two truths and frame your life with them, so much of what happens in your own life and in the world are going to make sense. You're going to have so much more clarity. So let me give them to you on the front end. Number one is this, people are still sinful. People are still sinful. Our stories today are going to show the compounding effect of sin in our lives. Number two, God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. Our stories today are going to show us the limitless bounds of God's sovereignty. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 20 as we walk through and see these two timeless truths come to life. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2 and then we'll go from there. Genesis 20, verse 1 begins this way. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So Sodom and Gomorrah at this point has been destroyed, if you remember from last week. They head south and they settle in a place called Gerar. It's a Philistine city and it's near the border of Egypt and Canaan, which would become the promised land. And when they got there, do you notice what they did? They began telling everyone that they were siblings. I can see Sarah going around saying, have you met my brother Abraham? And then Abraham going around saying, hey, let me introduce you to my sister Sarah. Now, in verse 2, there's a man called Abimelech mentioned there. Now, Abimelech's not a personal name like Brad or John. It's actually more of a title. In fact, it's a Philistine dynasty title. And you can see, just like there were pharaohs in Egypt, there were many of them, there were many Abimelechs here in Gerar. So if you flip over just a few chapters 
Go to chapter 26 and look at verse 1. It says there, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now notice just a few chapters over, Isaac does the same thing as his dad does, same place and meets in Abimelech. It's likely the son or the grandson of Abimelech here in chapter 20. But since we're there, let's go down a little bit further. Look at verse 7. When the men of the place asked him, that's Isaac, about his wife, that's Rebekah, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Does that sound familiar? Like father, like son, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree there, did it? The difference we're going to see, Isaac's technicality doesn't hold as much water as Abraham's technicality, which we'll look at more in a moment. But back to chapter 20, this Abimelech of this time, he heard of this. And so what he did is he took Sarah into his harem. Now, the harem of a king was simply just a Rolodex of women for him to choose from. And not just anyone made this cut. We know from this and other instances in Scripture that Sarah was absolutely stunning. She was beautiful. She was a looker. Genesis chapter 23 verse 1 tells us she lived to be 127 years old. So that makes her about 90 years old here. Needless to say, she aged very well. I wish I could say the same thing. Turned gray since I was 21 years old, and it's progressively getting worse. Just a few years ago, we were upstairs in the children's ministry area, and at the time I was serving on staff with Meryl Vaughn, who most of you know, uh, we had the blessing to pray her and to send her to a, another church to lead children's ministry there. And I'm just so thankful for her and the investment she's made into the lives of our families here at Geyer Springs. But we were with the kids, and this one little kid walked up to Meryl. Now, mind you, I'm only like seven years older than Meryl. The child said, Miss Merrill, is Pastor Brad your dad? <laughs> now, I've never taken the process of church discipline on a child, but I considered it at that moment. I'm kidding about that part, but not about the part of the child asking her if I was her dad. I sure haven't aged well, but Sarah did, and she caught the beauty of Abimelech here. And so Abimelech brought her into his harem. Now, this is interesting. This is not the first time Abraham has done this. I would encourage you to go back and look at Genesis 12 at another time. But for brevity's sake, let me read an instance to you that happened 25 years prior to this when Sarah was 65. Genesis 12, 11 through 13 says, When he, that's Abraham, or at the time Abram, was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Same song, different verse. This time it's not Gerar, it's Egypt. This time it's not Abimelech, it's Pharaoh. And so you've got to pause for a moment, at least I did. And you've got to think, Isaac, Abraham, brothers, what's wrong with you? How in the world could you throw your wives under the bus? I mean, what are you thinking? You're willing to give your wife over into the arms of another man. And they could argue those technicalities. They could rationalize that behavior. In fact, Abraham does it here in Genesis chapter 12. He says, make sure you say that you are my sister because if you don't, they're going to kill me. 
And they can say, well, Brad, they're going to take our wives anyway. Why should I have to die in the process? But even with Abraham, we could push this a little further. We could say, Abraham, you left your homeland. You left it all to follow the Lord. How could you do something like this? Abraham, the Lord appeared to you. He spoke to you. How could you do this? Abraham, the Lord gave you great wealth. He gave you victory. How could you do this? Abraham, God made this unilateral covenant with you that he promised to uphold no matter what you did. How could you do this? You saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the Lord's power. How could you do this? Abraham, you were blessed after praying to see your nephew and your nieces saved out of Sodom. How could you do this? And not only that, Abraham, you are a believer. Genesis 15, 6 says, And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. How could you do this? Well, I would propose this morning, the question is not so much, how could he? The question is, how could we? Because I would argue that we actually are in a way better place than Abraham. And the reason I say that is we have some things that Abraham didn't have. Abraham did not have the completed full copy of God's word. He did not have this full revelation in front of him. We do, yet we still sin. Abraham had to look forward to the promised Messiah that would come and pay the penalty for the sins of God's people. Do you know what we get to do? We get to look back on the surety that that promise has been fulfilled. It has already happened. Those Old Testament characters, they had the Holy Spirit with them for certain times and seasons. We as believers in Christ, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Not just with us, but in us for all time. And so it's not how could he, it's how in the world could we. Plus, just think for a moment, if my sins and your sins were documented in God's inspired book for people to read throughout the centuries, it'd be pretty embarrassing, wouldn't it? So we see the sins of these faith heroes come to life in the Word of God for a couple of reasons. One, it's an encouragement to you and I to know that they were not perfect. Alistair Begg says, the best of men are just that. Men at best. We have to remember that. But number two, it's an exhortation to avoid their errors. People were sinful then, and people are sinful now. And it all came down to a lack of trust in God's sovereignty for Abraham and Isaac. And it's the same for us. And so before we pounce these men, particularly Abraham, we've got to remember too that we lack trust in God because people were sinful then, and people are sinful now. And as we have this lack of trust in God's sovereignty, we may not sin exactly how Abraham did here, though if we were put in the situation, who knows, we might, but we still express our sinful nature and our lack of trust in God's sovereignty in different ways. So let's keep pushing through the text. We're seeing people are sinful, but in this next part, we're going to see that God is still sovereign. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? 
In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, no, you shall surely die and all who are yours. We're reminded here, God is faithful in our failures. God's sovereignty is present in spite of our sin. Though man will fail, it is God who will prevail. Look at the first two words of verse 3. I love this. What does it say? But God. Oh, that phrase is throughout Scripture, and it has incredible implications. And it's interesting, many times when we make an excuse to rationalize something that we did, our faith on a technicality, this is the conjunction that we use. But God, I mean, I know it was wrong, but God, I know it was wrong, but you don't understand. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, we see this phrase, but God. And right before that, Paul is talking about the sinfulness of man, but God. He says we were dead in our trespasses, but God. We were dead in our sins, but God. We walked with the world, but God. We followed the devil, but God. We were children of disobedience, but God. We lived in the passions of the flesh, but God. We were children of wrath, but God. Abraham's sin failed and disobeyed, but God. You and I sin, fell, and disobey, but God. Now we're talking about Abraham here, but really it's not about Abraham, but God. So what did God do? Something that only God could do. He directly intervened and spoke to Abimelech in a dream. Now I would be remiss if I didn't address this. These are things in Scripture that can trip us up. There are some things in Scripture that we might call prescriptive and others that are descriptive. You go to the doctor and he writes you a prescription or she writes you a prescription. You take it to the pharmacist, they fulfill it, and you go and you follow the guidelines and you do what it says. Descriptive might be him or her just telling you what's wrong with you. And it's kind of the same in Scripture. There are some things that just tell us what happened and there are some things that we are supposed to do and follow because they happened. And so the point is, just because God spoke to Abimelech in a dream does not mean that is normative for us today. I would not encourage you to go and try to seek God out through a dream, or if you have a dream, try to rationalize, well, is God trying to tell me something? I would just tell you to rest very sure and very firmly that God has spoke to us fully and completely and sufficiently in the finality of his word, the scriptures, the word of God. So just because Abimelech had a dream here, that's more descriptive than it is prescriptive for us. So don't get tripped up on that. What we need to focus on is what God does in and through this dream. What does he tell Abimelech? Well, he confronts him. He threatens him. He threatens his household. Now, that's actually a display of God's mercy and patience. Because God, because he is God, had the right just to go ahead and get rid of Abimelech and his household. But he didn't. He was going to make sure on his promise and in his patience and mercy, he's giving Abimelech a chance to make things right. This morning, if you're here and you're not right with God, think about that breath that you just took. God has allowed you to take that breath and in his patience and mercy and kindness, he has brought you here to hear his word. And so the simple fact that you are still alive, if you're not right with God, he's giving you time to repent. Don't test his patience. It will run out. Don't delay. Respond to him today. 
But God tells Abimelech, you're a dead man. You and your household. That is not Abraham's sister. That is the wife of Abraham. Now, if you go back to Genesis 12, to that other account, 25 years prior to this, it says in verse 17 and 18, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. Remember when he told Pharaoh, this is my sister, not my wife. So Pharaoh takes Sarah. And then what does God do to Pharaoh? He and his house were given great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Verse 17 there, I love it. It says, but the Lord. Remember, but God. And what did God do? He afflicted Pharaoh and his house with plagues. And if they thought these were bad, just wait for a couple hundred years until they get to the Exodus. And we see here that sin has a very wide net. The sin of Abraham directly impacted Sarah. The sin of Pharaoh impacted his household. The sin of Abimelech impacted his household. Our sins cast a wide net and others get caught in it. Remember, before we sin, it will directly impact others. But it's interesting, in verses 4 and 5, Abimelech actually gives a fair defense of himself before the Lord. I mean, this is the first of a couple times in this text that we're actually seeing the pagan king look better than the biblical patriarch. And what God did here was an absolutely incredible display of his sovereignty. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Now, I would say this as a sidebar. If you haven't voted, make sure you go vote on Tuesday and make sure you vote biblical principles. But even if your candidate doesn't win, be resting assured that that candidate is under the hand of a sovereign God. The Lord will turn like streams of water the king's heart for his purposes, for his will, for his glory. Verses 4 and 6 says that Abimelech did not approach her. It also says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. Now, who would the sin be against? Well, obviously it would be against Sarah, but even more than that, he says it would be against me, says the Lord. All of our sin, regardless of who we sin against, is always against God. So why is the text so emphatic here that Abimelech did not approach her? Why is the text so emphatic that God stepped in and stopped him from sinning, that God did not let Abimelech touch her? This is crucial. This is so important to understanding the text. Don't miss this. Sarah might have went into Abimelech's palace, but she never made it to Abimelech's bed. Now, why is that important? Because the next chapter, you're going to see the child of the promise is born. You're going to see that Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. And if she had not just gone into the king's palace, but actually made it to the king's bed, here would have been the question. Is that Abraham or Abimelech's child? Don't know. And it would have been tainted and, and it would have been skewed and no one would have known, is that the child of the promise? But God stepped in and there would be no question to who the child of the promise would be born to. And that is Abraham and Sarah. There was nothing, there was no one going to thwart the plan of God. Not then, not now, not tomorrow, not ever. We can stand today just like Job did thousands of years ago and say, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. In verse 7, God gives Abimelech some clear instructions. He says, you better return her to Abraham, and Abraham is going to pray for you. Now, we're going to see in a moment why Abraham needed to pray for Abimelech. But I, notice, no, I want you to notice here in verse 7 what God calls Abraham. He says, a prophet. 
Now, this is the first usage of this word in the Bible. The term actually begins to develop more when you get to the Mosaic Law, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. But what did a prophet do? Well, a prophet would foretell and foretell the word of God, but a prophet would also intercede for people. And this is what Abraham was going to do for Abimelech, intercede for him. In fact, just previously, we saw him intercede on behalf of Sodom. But I would argue to you today that we don't need any more prophets and priests. And the reason we don't need any more prophets and priests is that Romans and Hebrews both collectively tell us that we already have the perfect prophet and priest. And I would add in there, king. And his name is Jesus Christ. And those books tell us that our perfect priest and prophet is constantly interceding for us. If you are born again, you have been redeemed, you have been regenerated, you have been reconciled, you have been ransomed back to God. Christ is praying for you right now. Consider the weight, the implications of that. Robert McShane said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If you're in Christ today, he's praying for you. He is interceding for you at this moment. I know someone here needs to hear that this morning. Let's keep going. Look at verses 8 through 10. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? In verse 8, Abimelech wakes up early the next day. I wouldn't think he slept so well the night before. I'll be laying in bed, and if I'm sitting there thinking, did I not lock the shed? I will lay there restless until I get up to make sure I lock the shed. Much less if the sovereign Lord of the universe had threatened my life and the life of my family. I'm not getting a wink of sleep. So Abimelech wakes up the next day, and then we see in verses 9 and 10, when he comes to Abraham, he asks him three questions. Basically, he's saying here, Abraham, what did you do? Abraham, what did I do to you? And Abraham, why did you do this? Then Abraham gives three reasons in verses 11, 12, and 13. And I might even call these not reasons, but rather excuses, technicalities, rationalizations, justifications for his sin to mask his sin. And we come back to that theme, people are still sinful. Beginning in verse 11, Abraham said, I did this because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. They will kill me because, she, because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. The first technicality we see here is in verse 11. Abraham says, I did this because I figured you were going to kill me. I didn't think anybody here feared God. 
And sometimes we think that if we sin, it will somehow serve us a greater purpose. It's like walking down a trail and you see a poisonous snake and you know, I should not be near this poisonous snake. I need this snake away from me. So I reach down to pick this snake up and throw it away from me as far as I can. You know what's going to happen. You're going to get struck and the venom is going to enter your veins. That's what it's like trying to sin to make something better. Sin never makes anything better. It always does way more harm than good. We cannot sin to fulfill some greater purpose. But there's a second technicality here in verse 12. He's living on a half-truth. Remember when I said that Abraham's technicality holds a little bit more weight than Isaac's did because we see here technically Sarah is his sister, his half-sister. He says this here, Genesis eleven twenty nine 29 records this. They have the same dad, but they have a different mom. Now, don't get hung up on this either. The Mosaic law had not been instituted yet, and so there were really no restrictions so much on who you could marry and who you could go with. But this is also much closer to the fall and the flood than we are today. Ever since the fall, sin has progressively gotten worse, and it has rooted its way into every area of our life. And so now we have way more genetic deformities today than they would have then. Plus, everything post-flood has changed all things. People don't live as long as they once did after the flood as before. But you can research that later and consider that later. The issue here wasn't the marriage, but it was the lie about the marriage. His truth and his lie became convoluted, so much so that he really couldn't tell the difference. We have this little flower bed next to our carport, and I use the word flower bed very loosely (laughs) because at one time it had some flowers in it, but they're all dead. And A lot of greenery grew up in it, but it's just weeds. And so instead of pulling those weeds all summer long, as those weeds grew up, I just took my weed eater and just took it right across the top. It's nice and smooth. It looks just like a flat top haircut of weeds. Now, I've gotten used to them. Katie, on the other hand, has not gotten used to those weeds. And so I need to pull those weeds up and put something good in there. But I share that because too often we get used to the weeds in our garden. And we can't tell the difference between a weed and a plant. We can't tell the difference between a half-truth and a lie or a half-lie and a truth. And we realize we cannot be fruitful with old weeds in our garden. These old sins must be pulled. But look at the third technicality in verse 13. This is one that's probably the most concerning for me. It seems that Abraham is treading on some dangerous ground. He says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house... That's when I started doing this stuff. When God called me in Genesis 12 to leave my home, that's when I started doing this stuff. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like Adam in Genesis chapter 3? Why did you eat the fruit? It was that woman you gave me. Now, I don't know whether or not he's truly blaming God here, but it certainly sounds like he's using God as an excuse, and we can do this too. Well, God, if you'd just given me a better spouse, I wouldn't have to go and do that. Or God, if you made things better at home, I wouldn't have to do this. God, if you gave me a better job, I wouldn't have to do this. God, if you gave me better health, I could do this. We can never, ever blame God for our sin. He is not the author of our sin. He is not the cause of our sin. The blame always is fixed squarely on us. Not only is that sin, it is taking a swing at the sovereignty of God. See, the text here implies in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, that these are not the only times that Abraham and Sarah told this lie that they did this. He told Sarah to do this at every place which we come. This is almost another way of Abraham saying, I've been doing this for years, Abimelech. 
This is just how I am. This is just something that I do. We've all heard someone say about another person, oh, don't mind him or her. That's just how they are. That's just how they grew up. They've always been that way. They mean well. Or we may say, you know what? I've been doing this all my life. Just overlook it. It's not a big deal. Or, you know what? I know that I'm angry and I know that I'm a hothead, but I got that from my dad. And we realize that we can get desensitized to our sin. We can get used to those weeds in the garden. It's almost like at the dinner table, we set up a place for that sin. We set up a spare bedroom in the back of the house for that sin to take up residence. And we just get used to it. We get comfortable with it. It makes its place at home. We cannot be effective for the Lord when we allow those technicalities to creep into our life. Well, let's round out the chapter here, beginning in verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. While Abraham made excuses, Abimelech is being abundantly kind here. In verses 14 and 15, we see Abimelech blessing Abraham with livestock and land and servants. But in verse 16, I want you to take note of this. He gives him a thousand pieces of silver. And that's a lot of silver. That's probably 25 pounds of silver. And notice what Abimelech says to Sarah here. I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He didn't call Abraham your husband. He said, I've given your brother. What a reminder to them. What a gut punch to them living their faith on a technicality, on a rationalization. This had to be cutting. And just think about if we follow Christ the impact that our sins have on the watching world. It can spoil our witness. But why did he give her the thousand pieces of silver? There's two things in the text that tells us why. It's a sign of your innocence, and before everyone, you are vindicated. In other words, he is saying, Sarah came into my palace, but she never made it to my bed. Nothing happened between us. This cannot be stressed enough. It was God who prevented it because God is faithful in our failures. In spite of our sin, God is still sovereign. And even though man will fail, it is God who will prevail. And there is no doubt, there is no shadow cast on this, that this Abraham will father a child with this Sarah that we see here in the text. In verse 17, Abraham acted as a prophet and he prayed. And what happened? Abimelech was healed. Just like with Abimelech, God could have crushed him. He could have crushed Abraham as well. But he was patient to make good on his promise, just like he is with you and I. Now, why did Abimelech need to be healed? Well, the text explicitly says that he closed the womb of all the women who were in the home. But it also says that he needed to be healed. Now, the text doesn't say, but it might be implied that he even made him infertile in this process. And so the point is, God is not letting one thing get in the way of fulfilling his promise. This sovereign God is going to work in spite of sinful man. And the same God that closed the wounds in the house of Abimelech is the same God who opened them. And he used Abraham, the praying prophet, to do so. But flip over to Genesis chapter 1. I don't want to spoil next week's sermon, but I do want you to see this. 
The same God that closed those wombs and opened those wombs is the same God who is about to open the womb of Sarah in the next chapter. Verses 1 and 2, the Lord visited Sarah. Oh, he is faithful, isn't he? As he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. As we close this morning, I want to use previous chapters an illustration of the gross immorality that happened there to continue this theme that people are still sinful, but God is still sovereign. Look back one chapter. We'll not read its entirety. But after Sodom was destroyed, Lot and his daughters left. Lot's wife was destroyed into a pillar of salt as she turned around to look back at the destruction Abraham, or rather, Lot's son-in-laws didn't leave. And so it was just Lot and his two daughters. And so the Bible tells us they go up to Zoar, but they don't stay in Zoar. They actually go to a cave. And then you see this rationalization, this technicality, this justification of sin begin to pop up. Lot's daughters decide we must have children. There is no one to bear us children. Now, if you know the story, you know the gross immorality that happens, and so we'll keep it PG. But the point is this. They tried to rationalize the idea that they could seduce and impair their father so that they could have children. So what's the point of this? What's the point of this sin happening after Sodom? You can't really draw a direct line, but I would argue that you see Sodom and Gomorrah accepted a sin like homosexuality. It just became common day, and then that moved into incestuous relationships. And I would say today we're in a world that has pretty much accepted homosexuality as just the norm. What has come now? Oh, well, if you accept that, we'll be good. It never stops there. Now we must accept transgenderism. It is thrown in our face all day, every day, and we must stand firmly on the Word of God, which means the moment society accepts that, there's another grievous sin coming. I don't know what it will be, but it will be just as grievous as the one before. This will never stop spiraling down into the muck and the mire of the world and of sin. But we see here that people are still sinful. And you're like, I get that. I see that, Brad. But can you please show me where God is still sovereign in a story like that? Why would you use that as an illustration of what you just told us in Genesis 20? Well, look specifically at verses 37 and 38. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. See, these two groups, these two peoples were a product of the incest. And not only that, the Moabites and Ammonites were some of the fiercest enemies that Israel had. And Deuteronomy has some very harsh words for these two nations. So what does this have to do with God being sovereign? What does this have to do with the promise? If you fast forward in the biblical narrative to the person of Ruth, to the story of Ruth, the typical Jew would have been repulsed by Ruth because what was she? She was a Moabite. She was in the family line of Lot and his oldest daughter. They would have been disgusted by her because of this connection to Moab and the Moabites. But later in God's sovereignty, what did he do with Ruth? Listen to a portion of the family tree of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. That's another story in itself. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. 
in God's sovereign hand, he used this wretched situation to pull out an ancestor of this incestuous relationship to be the great-grandmother of Jesus. Consider, or of David, rather, whose the line would come to Jesus. And this messianic line that God promised to bring Jesus into the world would not be broken. And that family line in Matthew 1 begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Nothing was going to stop God from fulfilling his promise because his Faithfulness is ever-present in our failures. His sovereignty is there in spite of our sin. Though man will fail, it is God who will prevail. Abraham Kuyper said, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. It is all His. There's not a place His sovereign rule does not touch. So where does sin and sovereignty intersect in our lives this morning? 